Gentlemen, we do not stop till nightfall. What about breakfast? We've already had it. We've had one, yes. What about second breakfast? Don't think he knows about second breakfast, Pip. What about elevensies? Luncheon, afternoon tea, dinner, supper. He knows about them, doesn't he? I wouldn't count on it. Hello, we are Bloobcast. I'm Rob. I'm Ewan. And I'm James. But the question is, why are we called Bloobcast? Yes. Yes. Oh no, Mr. Frodo. Well, that gives it away. <laughs> so, today, the Bloobcast is talking about Lord of the Rings, the f- particularly the Fellowship of the Ring, the extended edition by Peter Jackson. Uh, one of the most brilliant cinematic mythologies that has graced our world. Um, nerds alike mm-hmm. love it, big fantasy nerds, you know. It's changed cinema, it's changed how we, you know, tell stories, especially in the fantasy genre. Uh, it's inspired uh, countless um, storytellers and filmmakers around the globe, ourselves included. Um, so we're very, very excited to be talking about it today. Yeah. Mm. Like, I'm not a big fantasy person normally, it's not my go-to genre, yet Lord of the Rings, I'd say, is like my favourite film of all time, specifically Fellowship, but I love all three of the trilogy. I think most people are unanimous on that, like, they, they like all three of them, but Fellowship often is the, like, favoured of the three, I think. I think it's the mm. best one. It's it, the most successful at what it's wanting to do, I think. 100%. Like, I'm a big fan of Two Towers because for me that's the one that feels the most kind of like Beowulf, which is what Lord of the Rings was kind of heavily like inspired by. Yes. But in term, you know, because it's the story of kings and and like wars and and but it's all kind of quite small compared to the the much bigger scale stuff of Return of the King. But um, yeah, the thing with Fellowship of the Ring is that it. It's the most Lord of the Rings. It's what people think of when they think of Lord of the Rings. They think of hobbits, they think of elves, mm. uh, they think of the ring wraiths, uh, and maybe, I don't know, the Balrog as well. You know, there's mm. these are the things that are mm. the most prominent in what people think of when they think of Lord of the Rings. It's... I guess orcs as well, which yeah. it also mm. has. So it's funny you say that, like, you know, the Two Towers is, like, the most Beowulf of the three, because... I think Return of the King is the most Beowulf to me, in my opinion. I don't know. It's just because, okay. like, yeah. y- you know, there's the big battle at the end. There's kings fighting and stuff like that. And also, you know, there is the final confrontation with the Grendel figure of Gollum at the end. Mm, that's but, true. But that's something we'll, we'll get to that, because I realise we need to probably introduce how we uh, encountered the film for the first time. So it starts about a month before Fellowship came out in cinemas a certain other film based on a popular fantasy book series that i do not wish to name for reasons <laughs> which are probably clear and yet i went to see that in the cinema with my parents and my sister and um, one of the trailers beforehand was for this thing lord of the rings and i was somewhat intrigued by it in the lands of middle earth legend tells of the dark lord Sauron and the ring that would give him the power to enslave the world. Lost for centuries, it has been sought by many 
and has now found its way into the hands of the most unlikely person imaginable. And remember, sometime after this, I saw pictures of the action figures in the Argos catalogue and I asked my dad if he could take me to see it and he said um, no because he thought I'd find it too scary. I think we then got a free promotional CD-ROM which had like all this information on the film and all the trailers on it. And I used to boot up my computer and spend a good while just watching and re-watching the trailers <laughs> rather than like playing games and stuff. And I think my, eventually my dad relented and said, it's not to be scared, he'd take me to see it. And like the film was rated PG, this is just before like 12A came out. It was a PG but I was given the warning that it wasn't suitable children. And I'd turned eight a few months before fellowship came out so i was just about old enough to go and see it oh. another thing was um one of my grandfathers who i sadly never met properly as he passed away when i was three months old he was a massive tolkien fan and from here when we had inherited several books that related to tolkien and lord of the rings and there's one i distinctly remember which is one my dad showed me a lot which is this encyclopedia which went into detail about all the characters places in middle earth all these artist illustrations and i was fascinated with it my dad used to show me like pictures and stuff and before I saw it and he kind of like explains like how Sauron got the ring and lost the ring and how Gollum got the ring mm. and all that and how Bilbo found the ring and then Frodo got it I remember him particularly showing me a picture of Sauron and I remember thinking wow this guy means business Aha. I think it's January 2002 went to see and went to a shopping center called Blue Water which is this big shopping center in Kent and I think me and my dad got into the screen just as the trailer for some film called Raptor Race was finishing. And then a trailer started for Star Wars Episode 2. And there was no sound aside from the Imperial March. But seeing Anakin grown up and quote-unquote Boba Fett was enough to get me excited. And then the Imperial March continued. Spider-Man was swinging around and I was super confused because I thought Spider-Man was going to be in Star Wars Episode 2. What? <laughs> Of course, it, um, it was just an issue of the audio in the cinema, and it was actually just a trailer for Spider-Man. Um, then the Star Wars music persisted throughout the trailer for Austin Powers' Gold Member and Lord of the Rings, so I ended up missing the opening monologue from Gladriel. But luckily, my dad had already explained to me everything that had happened to Sauron making the ring and everything, so I kind of knew what was going on. And then the audio started working partway through the battle so I was able to I didn't the whole film wasn't spoiled for me in that regard mm. and I was blown away from the, by the film to the extent I wouldn't leave my seat until the movie ended I distinctly remember the end when Frodo and Sam were on the boat I desperately needed to go to the toilet but oh. I held it in although <laughs> I was impatient for the movie to end because I did to see the end of the movie but I also really needed to go to the toilet it is a long movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah Especially for an eight-year-old. Yeah. But yeah, and then continuing this story, um, yeah, a month or so later, I ended up coming down with a horrible virus. I'm not too sure what it was, but I was really unwell. And this was like a three-day weekend, and um, yeah, but because I was unwell, I had to stay at home with my mum while my dad and grandparents took my siblings to the Natural History Museum for the day, which is not not great for like, especially if you're really excited about going and then you can't go. But then. The next day, my grandma came round for a present for me to make up for me not being able to go. And it was a Frodo action figure, which I was really excited because at, at that age, I just like, gravitated towards the main character in practically everything. So I was like, oh yeah, Frodo, I've got a Frodo figure. And then Lord of the Rings in general has always been something I've gone back to on occasion. 
But for me, the problem was finding the time to watch the films as they're very long, as we'll get into. Then during the last lockdown, I had a week off work coming up. So I decided to buy the extended edition Blu-ray box set as up till that point, I'd only seen the theatrical versions. Initially, I was going to pace myself out and only watch half of the film, half of each film per day because the extended cuts are split across two discs. But I got so into the first half of Fellowship, I think I cooked some dinner, then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to watch the next half of Fellowship. And I got really into Lord of the Rings and, and kind of was like, yeah, you know what, this is Star Wars, this is, these are my favourite films now. And I finally attempted to read the books, which I tr given a couple of attempts, but I never got past Fellowship. This time I actually managed to get through all the books. I started painting the Games Workshop miniatures for their Lord of the Rings game. And also this year, View Cinemas, which is the cinema I tend to go to, they were doing screenings of the theatrical versions and I couldn't pass that up to see like my favourite films in the cinema. So I took myself to see each film and seeing them again on the big screen was really special. Wow, that's really cool. I, I love that you mentioned so many of the good films that came out around that time because you, you, you realise how lucky we had it growing up. <laughs> Especially like Spider-Man and Star Wars and everything like that. So I first always kind of knew about Lord of the Rings because my dad was a really big Tolkien fan and he read them religiously. Um, so I kind of had some vague awareness of them growing up, but I remember distinctly, it was at a neighbor's house, it was like a, a kid who lived at this neighbor's, um, who I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like big friends with or anything, but you know, it was a neighbor kid and we hung out and I, this was when I was like about three or four. And I remember he had this really scary, like, kind of mask thing with horns. It was like a little devil mask that he had hanging on his wall. And I think it was like just some weird thing that his parents had bought somewhere. And um, I distinctly remember him telling me that that's kind of what an orc looked like, <laughs> um, but without the horns. Um, and I always remembered that. And that always stuck in my mind of, okay, so, you know, orcs are kind of like these demonic creatures. And I, I remember it so vividly when I was, I was about, you know, maybe four years old, so, which makes sense because that was when the films came out, was around four or five, actually no, six years old because it was 2001, the first film came out, so I would have been six. Mm. And um, but I was very aware of Lord of the Rings, uh, even though I didn't see them in the cinema. My dad read me The Hobbit, and then I got the book. And I was pro pretty young. I want to say I was about 10 years old when I started reading them. Um, and because I remember distinctly reading them when I, when I was in year five at school. Uh, so about, yeah, nine or ten. Uh, and the first Lord of the Rings film I saw in the cinema was actually Return of the King. But I'd already seen the previous films on DVD by that point or, or on, probably on video even. Um, but I, you know, I was a big enough fan by the time it was around 2005 that I, I watched them and was really excited to see it at the cinema. Um, and yeah, no, it was a very long film for, a, at, at this point, a 10 or 11 year old. Um, mm. But yeah, no, I was a really big Lord of the Rings fan, like throughout my like childhood years and teenage years. I, I got the Warhammer models <laughs> as well. Um, I got the video games i played the two towers oh, yes. and the return return, return of oh, the king on playstation oh, 2 those games um yes yeah, so good yeah um shadow of mordor as well on on the computer there was a lot of games also uh, was it the war of war of the north or something like that yeah i know like what you mean it's the rpg game. one isn't it 
Yeah, yeah, I played that as well. Um, so yeah, no, I played a lot of games and I I read the books. Uh, still not read the Silmarillion, strangely enough, despite mm. being such a big fan. But I have, mm. but I have read, but I have read the original three stories and and the Hobbit. Um, and mm. I occasionally look over them every now and then. I know my dad. Uh, after Ian Holm died last year, um, Dad started rereading um, Fellowship of the Ring as well. Oh. Um, and it's interesting. My dad was always a big fan of the books as well, but he was always obsessed with this 1981 radio adaptation uh, of Lord of the Rings, which is brilliant. It has Ian Holm as Frodo, uh, who, of course, then later played Bilbo in the films, and Bill Nighy as uh, Samwise Gamgee. Yes. Um, so it's a really great little cast, and uh, it's absolutely brilliant. A lot of you can see a lot of the influence on the voices that the characters have. Like um, Gandalf sounds almost exactly the same as he does with Ian McKellen in the film. Mm. Yeah, so I don't know. I was just a really big Tolkien fan throughout, and uh, so I was very excited to chat about Fellowship of the Ring. And I, I did say to the guys, right, guys, we need to say. Fellowship of the Ring, because it's literally going to turn into what I've just done now, which is talking about Lord of the Rings as a whole. And it's like, no, 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 let's focus in Fellowship first. I remember... Yeah, uh, Two Towers next year. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Orc, I remember the Orc mask, and I remember being really, really scared of the goblins in the Mines of Moria. The first ever... I mean, I encountered Lord of the Rings in so many different ways growing up. But ultimately, I was too young. I mean, you guys are actually slightly older than me. I was too young to actually go see it in cinemas at the time. Um, so my uh, my brother got to see it in cinemas with my dad. So I heard stories, as it were, of this amazing film. My brother loved it, you know. Um, and we had a Lord of the Rings poster on our wall. So I was just kind of looking at it like, what is this? So the first time I properly encountered it was on VHS. Uh, the Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, VHS. And um, I couldn't watch the whole thing again. But my brother, being quite cool that he is, he did introduce me to certain scenes that he thought were not too ghastly for me. But as I kind of got older, he showed me more of the film. Eventually, I watched the whole thing. But he showed me scenes like with Gollum. Uh, he showed me scenes with like you know the orcs going like it's on the menu boy. Well, that's that's two towers I think. But, um, <laughs> but like he showed, just throughout yeah, the whole trilogy, yeah, throughout the whole trilogy, he showed me bits of everything basically. Um, and I remember being really enjoyed. But the first time I enjoyed the like Lord of the Rings to its full potential, I think, was the PS2 games, the Two Towers video games, which has the story of the Fellowship of the Ring in it. It's kind of submerged both of the stories, interestingly enough, because I think. Oh the, yeah, the game there, studio. There's whole, mm. Yeah, there's a whole thing with the games. I think one studio had the rights to the books, one studio had the rights to the films. Yeah, exactly. So as I got older, I eventually watched all three of the Loring's. I participated in film marathons. I'm sure you guys have done this before. Like you know, they watch all three extended editions in one day, and it's like two in the oh, morning. Oh, I've done that. Yeah, no, it's brutal. <laughs> But um, so I did yeah, it's that. like eating too much cake at once. Oh yeah, no. By the end, you're done in, man, done in. Um, but yeah, so I did that, and I love the video games, of course. Uh, I was always into Lord of the Rings, but I wasn't a massive fan of it like I was with Star Wars and Doctor Who and uh, everything else that I was into until university. Now, at university, I think it was my third year. I was having a bit of a low time because it was, you know, finals, you know, dissertation had to be done oh yeah I, um 
I can relate. Yeah, I'm sure we all three of us can. And it was also just a bit of a dull time, I think. University wasn't always high. You know, it wasn't a happy time all the time. But when I was feeling really low and, like, you know, trying to get my dissertation done, I had some downtime. And that downtime was spent reading The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy for the first time when I was about 19, I want to say. I Actually, that's when I first read the books. Uh, a bit late, a bit of a late bloomer myself. But I read all of the Hobbit in my local library. And then when I went back to university, there was, it was the big Yorkshire library, uh, which is quite old and, you know, massive and full of books and old leather-bound books. It was quite a magical experience just having to read through all three of these books, you know. Uh, it really cheered me up during a, you know, a rather hard time uh, and captured my imagination. But yeah, that's kind of how I came across Lord of the Rings. Also, I did encounter the Ralph Bakshi film when I was a kid and I was terrified of it on VHS. Um, I thought it was just too weird at the time. Me go, sir. Me go and see the elves. Oh my! Oh, hooray! I now appreciate it more as an adult, but yeah, so I think ultimately that's how I encountered it. It was just a progressive, you know, I progressively got into it. You know what's really funny about this is that we are just completely taking it as a given that everyone knows what Lord of the Rings is. <laughs> I mean,. <laughs> like most people probably do know about it though don't they yeah no it's it's interesting it's so like because people haven't talked about it that much recently i guess the hobbit films left a bad taste in everyone's mouth so they're yeah. just not yeah. really plotted up anymore but like but it is so influential it completely you know like i guess the only thing that was comparable was th white's um uh the the man who would be king you know like the king arthur kind of novelization oh yeah i've got um, those on my shelf yeah there's there's nothing or the one who would be king there's nothing comparable to that apart from that and i don't know hp lovecraft uh like his you know cthulhu mythos but it's nothing comparable to the huge cultural landmark that was lord of the Rings. there was i suppose there was the no. works of lord dunsany as well uh i hope i said his name right yeah. he wrote the kind of fairy tales or stuff that that kind mm. of predates tolkien and there was i suppose mm. alice in wonderland i guess you know there's just little things like that and you know the canterbury tales there were these sort of myths and tales written um yeah so that's what tolkien wanted to do he wanted to he was disappointed that England didn't have a mythology like you know, like Greeks have their whole like, mythology. He wanted to create a mythology for England. That's where Middle Earth came. And actually, I think he the Silmarillion actually predates the Hobbit. He started writing that during the First World War. Oh, it's, it's very mean of Tolkien to say that, considering King Arthur is right there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, poor, poor King Arthur. Um, but no, yeah, he, he does have a point. This kind of idea of this large um, kind of pantheon of like mythical creatures that that existed in ancient Greece and ancient Egypt. We didn't really have something like that, I guess, because our culture got so kind of tangled up in Christian mythology as well, which, you know, kind of had like a, like a singular god. Mm. Uh, but we did have giants. We, you know, Britain does have its own mythology. I do want to stress that. Yeah. But it is interesting. It is interesting, though, seeing... Like, you know, elves were always a kind of mischievous, scary... When you think of Midsummer Night's Dream, they're, they're not, like, kind of these proud, honourable, beautiful... Well, I guess they've always been beautiful, but, like, you know, they're quite scary elves. But mm. here you've got them as these wonderful, heroic, kind of 
um, magical people, and that's completely Tolkien. Like, Tolkien just completely recreated what elves are in the popular imagination. Mm. So that's how elves are depicted in things like Dungeons and Dragons. Like, they're not like your um, Father Christmas making all the toys in the factory mm. elves. They're, they're like these no, humanoid no. things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and with the pointed ears, of course. But and then, of course, the orcs are just completely Tolkien. That's just you know, like he took it. It was it was kind of a like a, you know they are goblins, really. You know, which are a much older idea. But then they're you know they're bigger and more brutal, kind of mixed with trolls as well, which are kind of bigger creatures. Um, really scary, kind of demonic, really. I guess so. There's a lot of. A lot of influences have kind of come into Lord of the Rings and kind of turned it into this much bigger thing. Yeah. But I, I'm glad that Rob mentioned... I know it's going to sound weird, but I'm glad he mentioned Santa Claus because, debatably, uh, it was actually a Santa Claus tale that predates the Lord of the Rings. There, I've got it on my shelf and I read it last Christmas. Uh, it was the Santa Claus letters. Uh, the Father Christmas letters, I should say, actually. Um, so what Tolkien did before the Lord of the Rings is... He wrote these little letters with illustrations that are very like the drawings you see in Lord of the Rings about Santa Claus and his polar bear, uh, you know, getting presents to all the children. And eventually, across the letters, are stories formed about Santa fighting goblins um, and having, like, this epic battle with them with, like, these penguins and stuff like that. And it's just like, what? <laughs> and it, you can see bits of Lord of the Rings kind of resounding and they also got ancient languages and stuff like like santa comes across like these ancient languages in the cave that look very elvish and it's like oh my god this is like the beta version of lord of the rings and it's a story about santa claus it's really funny <laughs> it's re it's interesting to think that because i guess what would be comparable to that is when you think of the hobbits the hobbits are the closest thing to a kind of santa elf yeah uh, or a father christmas elf um, and at the same time, you've got Gandalf, who's this kind of, you know, big bearded man who kind of turns up mm. with a pointy hat. Mm -hmm. uh, so you do have that change from, yeah, like you've got the dwarves and the hobbits in The Hobbit and Gandalf, the wizard. And then, of course, in Lord of the Rings, it becomes all about the hobbits. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, that's a really interesting mm. kind of jump from Father Christmas to Gandalf, really. Well, that's uh, the thing. You can see it. Tolkien, I think, is a big fan of myths and stories. And you mentioned Beowulf, and we've talked about Father Christmas and, you know, all, I guess, pagan stuff as well, like pagan mythology. Well, Tolkien was a huge fan of myths and stories. And I think Lord of the Rings is kind of an amalgamation of that. So it's an amalgamation of, you know, the Father Christmas myth, the, um, the pagan myths, the Beowulf myth, the you know the Arthurian legend and all that and it's all mixed together in a story that only Tolkien could tell um it's very clear that mm. he was a big fan of these stories and it shows he's cultured in that and he studied it um so I think you know it's something you can learn like if you want to tell your own story you've got to look into the old stories first because then you can sort of take things and make something new out of it that's kind of what he's done mm. a little bit yeah Tolkien I think I think he just wanted an excuse to invent new languages because yes. that was the other thing. Not not yeah. just mythology, but he was a huge like old languages nut, and he loved um, old English, Welsh, and Danish. And there's a lot of that in Elvish and yeah. like the language of Mordor as well. And, you know, you can really tell like it's all just based on this language research he had done for years. He did a, a translation of Beowulf 
for instance. Mm. Um, yes. Anyway, let's let's go on to the films. One thing I want to kind of say, um, just kind of segue, um, is that Tolkien himself said that these like Lord of the Rings was unfilmable and unsuited to being adapted to the screen. Mm. And I think there's been there were a couple of attempts. I know the Beatles at one point were attached to make a movie with I think it Paul McCartney as Frodo. Ringo as Sam, George Harrison as Gandalf, and then John Lennon as Gollum. I think that was going to be directed by Kubrick, and then that never happened. And mm. like even at the, like, at the time, it was tough for Peter Jackson to get these films made because I think which, which what, I, what I find hilarious is the kind of movies Peter Jackson was making before, which are these like really kind of like low budget, campy, over the top gore fest. We've got trouble. Because he wanted to make the films back to back, and I, he, he had to really fight to get them made the way he wanted. He was initially working with another studio. Um, he wanted to make two films. But the studio wanted to try and condense everything into one film, and like, the suggestions they came up, they came up with, sound like a complete mess. Like um, they wanted to merge Rohan and Gondor with Aowen becoming Boromir's sister. Mm. Helm's Deep would have just been cut, as would the Balrog and Balin's tomb. Um, Saruman was in danger of being cut. I think they, I think the wording was either cut or use Saruman. And then last point thing was Treebeard was going to stop Merry and Pippa by the Urukai. But um, to be fair to the studio, they did give Jackson some time to find another studio who would make the two. I think he said, if you don't do it in four weeks, we're going to make the one film with or without you. Potent mm. And I think they're potentially going to get Karen Tarantino to do the one film. Oh. I think, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people kind of um, passing by, but then he got to new lines in them. And I think they said something like, there's three books, make, make three films. Yeah. Next Christmas. The most extraordinary tale ever told will come to life. Even the smallest person can change the course of the future. I mean, first of all, Quentin Tarantino directing Lord of the Rings is something I'd actually want to see. That would be quite interesting. <laughs> um, but as a movie... Yeah, no, it doesn't work, does it? But I just think, you know, it would be interesting to see a more violent version. I mean, to be fair, it is quite violent. This is another thing, actually. It's uh, Peter Jackson as a director. And it got me thinking about Sam Raimi as well. I've actually, I'm watching the Spider-Man films again as well. Um, I'm going on a weird film binge at the moment. But both of them are quite slapstick violence horror directors. It's a bit weird that one day they got picked out to pick, uh, you know, tell these rather hopeful mythologies if you will where like you know yes there's a violent content and stuff like that but there's still happy endings and stuff like that and there's ideals mm. and stuff and you know hope um they do a very good job of it you wouldn't think it like the, the director of brain dead i kick ass for the lord to jackson's credit before lord of the rings um he did do a serious like kind of like artsy film which is called heavenly creatures i've not was it won loads of awards. It launched Kate Winslet's career. So I think that kind of gave him like the clout needed for him to kind of start doing Lord of the Rings. Yeah, but I can see, I can see the bits of their directorial style being deployed in the film. Like just, 
you know, the sheer violence that occurs during the battles, like mm. heads being decapitated. I'm like, yeah, that's something Peter Jackson yeah. would do. And so that works to his advantage, the fact he's familiar with that kind of technique. And the same with Spider-Man as well. Like, There's, there's some br- pretty violent stuff in that Spider-Man movie, like where he gets impaled on the glider and all that. I just think, yeah, mm. you know, these directors are familiar with violence, so it works to their advantage. Speaking of the violence in this film, the first big kind of combat set piece, I guess, is is the fight at the Mines of Moria in uh, Balin's uh, tomb. I really wanted oh, that's, to point out... With, that's my favourite scene. Fight, yeah, because with the... I, I remember in the book, I've even mentioned that the goblins have like two or three cave trolls, but then they, they never actually fight them. They just run for it, which, I mean, fair enough. Um, but in the film, of course, we actually do get to see a cave troll. That I, remem- I remember distinctly in the trailer for Fellowship of the Ring, I remember the scene of Boromir um, where they fire the arrows and it's just him going, they have a cave troll. Oh, um, yeah, that's one of the best <laughs> lines. I love that. They have a cave troll. Yeah, yeah. and But that's, you know, and then we actually get to see a cave troll and then we get to have a fight. And I think what's great is you can really see the influence from uh, Ray Harryhausen and the kind of uh, claymation style that he used to do. Like, it feels a lot like that, I think. And you mm. can you can, you can can always see Jackson's influences, is what I mean. Yeah, because his favourite film of all time is King Kong. That's why he remade King Kong. Oh, but yeah. I do want to point out the um, cave troll. I've watched all like the extended edition extra features, uh-huh. and he kind of mentioned the backstory he gave for the cave troll. I don't know if you know this, but apparently, like, the ghost be like this. Um, he's like a child basically, and like, like his mum's waiting for him to come home, but he's not come home. And, like the goblins are kind of like got they're just pulling him around. Mm. I think yeah, so that's oh, his yeah, the, 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 There is a story though that they they are like all pulling him into the fight. You know, he yeah. clearly isn't interested in being there. And he kills as many goblins as he does uh, attack Frodo. So, <laughs> one thing, know. yeah, and I think what's good is the effects in that sequence have aged really well because, like, the CGI cave troll doesn't look too out of place amongst alongside all the like on live action. Mm. Oh, it's brilliantly done. It's like, yeah, incredible. One thing that um, the director brings in. I don't know why he's... Peter Jackson, there we go. For some reason, it just slipped my mind. Um, the, one thing that Peter Jackson does bring to the Lord of the Rings movies that Tolkien kind of... I think he does better than Tolkien, in my opinion, is the humour. And he is a good director of comedy, Peter Jackson. He knows his comedy with Brain Dead, as I mentioned before. It's quite a funny film. There are moments of humour that are not in the book that are just so brilliant. And I think that's what makes it so accessible to you know modern audiences. Now, there's that bit, we mentioned the troll. Um, there's that bit where they kind of go into the tomb. It's a good combination of horror and comedy. They pick up that book and it goes like, well, we cannot get out, they're coming. And then you just realise that something really horrible is coming to them. It's like perfect suspense building. But then one of the Tooks just knocks over a bell into that well. And it's the That's most... in the book. Is it in the book? But but it, it's, it's made... It's more, it's it's more, in the book. It's in... But it's more slapstick here. It's in the Ralph Batchiki version as well. Is it more? Is yeah. it a slapstick as I remember though? It's been a while since I read the book. Well, there is the joke of the fact that, like, um, uh, Pippin causes the thing to fall down the well, and then it just, they don't hear anything for the longest time, and then it's like, Phew. so, it, no, I think... I think oh, yeah, shit, I maybe say, I got that wrong. Throw yourself in next time. Is that in the book as well, when he tells him to throw himself in? It's yeah. definitely in the Bashki version. Oh, yeah, maybe it is in the book. Different. Oh, crap, I screwed that up. Fool of a took! Throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. 
Tolkien's really funny. Uh, you know what? <laughs> yeah, I don't, take, I take I back don't what I think. Although I will to give Jackson credit, I don't think the second breakfast line's in the book. Really? There's a variation on it. <laughs> I think yeah, they do to talk about second breakfasts in it. They do, yeah, 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 yeah. No, uh, uh, Pippin complains about like the the several dinners that or, or several meals they're supposed to have. While and it's in the Hobbit as well, I think. Yeah. I need. We. Well, I. We you know what? Mm. I just think I need to read the books again. <laughs> it's, it's. It's. To be fair, it's really difficult to remember like what's in the book yeah, and what's in the film is, a lot of the time. You know. There is a lot of lot of stuff, especially as we've seen. Like, I saw the films first. But one thing I do want to talk about is the casting. Like for the most part, this the film's cast is like. Perfect. Like all the actors embody their characters perfectly, and you don't think of them as being these like big name film stars like you do with some films. Like yeah. it might be Ian McKellen and Christopher Lee playing Gandalf and Saruman, but you don't see them as the actors. You see them as characters they're playing. And um, I think some of the casting choices could have changed this. Like um, Sean Connery was, I think he was approached for Gandalf, but he couldn't understand the script. I think that's the story. Um, David Bowie wanted to play Elrond, but Peter Jackson thought that would be too distracting. And it's interesting that Aragorn himself was actually recast after filming began because they cast Stuart Townsend. But then Jackson realised he was a bit too young for the part, so he got Viggo Mortensen to, re to replace him. And Viggo, actually, what swayed him to the part was his son was a big fan of the books and he's like oh my god lord of the rings do it dad do it and mm. i think he read the books on the flight over to new zealand yeah yeah and um christopher lee was the biggest uh lord of the rings fan to the point he'd actually known tolkien in his life mm. and uh he always his dream had always been to play gandalf uh but i guess they they felt that he was too old for the role at that point, but he got you know probably the the most perfectly cast role in the film, which is you know Saruman, because um, one of the things that they talk about a lot is is the voice of Saruman and how dangerous it is. And wow, I think Christopher Lee with his voice is a good choice for anyone who has a a, a specific voice. Um, mm. So you know, and I mean you know like. Yeah, you're right to bring he's, it up. Rob. He's up the, there. The with... Casting of this film is amazing. Mm. Yeah, he's up there with what's it? Um, Tony J. Like those two have just had the best villainous voices. The nine have left Minas Morgul. The nine. They crossed the river Eisen on Midsummer's Eve, disguised as riders in black. They breached the Shire. They will find the ring and kill the one who carries it. Frodo. seriously think that a hobbit could contend with the will of Sauron. There are none who can. Against the power of mortal, there can be no victory. We must join with him, Gandalf. We must join with Sauron. It would be wise, my friend, Tell me, friend, when did Saruman the Wise abandon reason for madness? The way the film opens is like a great way to introduce to the world of the film. 
and like the prologue perfectly summarizes the origins of the ring, like how Bilbo Baggins ended up with it without having to listen to the Leonard Nimoy classic, um, The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. Just, just an excuse to throw that in there, but yeah. In the middle of the earth, in the land of Shire, lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire with his long wooden pipe fuzzy woolly toes he lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him bilbo bilbo baggins he's only three feet tall bilbo bilbo baggins the bravest little hobbit of them all and then we get a scene in the shire establishing who are essentially our four main characters frodo sam merry and pippin we see that Frodo is an instant young hobbit with a real love for the Shire and that Sam is a bit unsure of himself and lacks confidence which is shown by his avoidance to talk to Rosie Cotton. Go on Sam, ask Rosie for a dance. I think I'll just have another ale. <laughs> no you don't. Go on. <laughs> and then we see Merry and Pippin as these mischievous immature hobbits which is great because they, they start out as pretty much being the comic relief characters for this film that is a great touch of comedy from the film james is is the introduction of mary and pippin with the firework um because that basically in the book we don't really meet mary and pippin until like they've already left on their adventure and it's a very weird like introduction like oh and now these are other main characters um so i think the film did a really good job of putting them in as you said rob to have these kind of mischievous hobbit characters who steal Gandalf's firework and then, you know, light it and, and cause a giant dragon to attack the Shire. Done. Supposed to stick it in the ground? It is in the ground! Outside. This was your idea! scene correct me if i'm wrong does gandalf bashing his head in i mean i know it's described in the book as being like a bit too small for him but him bashing his head on like the house is that in the book as well i'll tell the story about that Hmm. that wasn't scripted oh there you go actually banged his head but he stayed in character and it was so good that peter jackson kept it in brilliant there you go yeah well that makes sense yeah no it's a great little scene as well so yeah no there are little touches like that james where you are right like you know, the, just um, remembering what's in the, the book filmmakers and were really good about it, putting in a bit of comedy. Yeah, yeah. I need to reread but, but, yeah, the books, we, man. Yeah, but in the opening, we also get glimpses into Gandalf. We see how he's like the character, but he's also got a calmer, more human side to his character. Shown in the scene where he's trying to say Bilbo to part of the ring. I think the line that encapsulates this perfectly it says, Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you." Trying to help you. Mm. And the scene establishes it establishes how much of a hold the ring has on those who are burning to bear it. What also makes this whole opening scene important is 
that the audience sees life in the Shire, so we understand what it is that Frodo is setting out to protect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and it's a nice thing that the audience is going to recognise. Like, it's a nice little farmland place. There's not... Yeah, hobbits are pretty weird, but they kind of just look like little village country bumpkin folk. You know, Aww. we, we recognise that. It's so Dickensian. Where, whereas... Sorry. Yeah, Karen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then, but then later on... You know, we start to go into really kind of weird territory that audiences, you know, very easily could have been like, "What? Well, what is going on? What is any of you know?" Like Mines yeah. of Moria, Balrog, elf mm. people—they're in a forest now, and there's Ewoks. <laughs> they have like the, they, I, I, I always say that Galadriel's kingdom is the Ewok village in. Uh, yeah, no, it makes the, sense. <laughs> in the trees, um, but um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's it's weird. And, and audiences could have so easily have just been completely alienated and gone, no, not not doing this. So, both the book and the film start off, lovely little village, you know, countryside village. Everyone's farming and drinking beer in taverns. It's mm. all lovely, and there's a birthday party. Mm. We recognize this. This is all good. Right, you know. Birthday. And then little things start to introduce you to like, oh god, this is yeah. you know things are going like like Bilbo's yeah. becoming more and more kind of sinister, and and there's the point when of course he calls his he calls the ring my precious, which is a really yeah, ugh, which is called throwback to Gollum because we see we do yeah, see yeah. Gollum saying my precious in the opening scene, although he's kept to the shadows because I hadn't finalised his design yet. So it kind of gives yeah. some like elements of intrigue about when we see him in Two Towers as a fully realised character. We can see, oh, that's what he looks like. Yeah. Tolkien was very good because, yeah, he did the exact same thing in the book. The one thing that is told to us constantly throughout the book is, is in the first book, before we meet him properly, is these big yellow eyes that just follow them. Yeah. You know, like he keeps trailing behind the Fellowship and it's... And Frodo keeps looking back and he just sees these eyes in the shadow and then it's absolutely mm. terrifying. And, you know, so, it, yeah, a lot of the time it's just Joaquin did it. <laughs> well, one thing I want to say, yeah. I tweeted about this last night, it's just how good these films look. Like, they oh. look incredible, the special effects team. Like, for oh, its yes, time. they do. They... Yeah, like, it's in unbelievable. Even the whole bit with the Balrog when they're fighting it and all the kind of, like, the, the ancient kind of tomb that they're in is like falling apart. It's all CGI, but it looks so good. I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Arnor. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Uldun! Go back to the shadow. For its time, I watched it on a big it's not TV. Not all CGI. Uh, not all the CGI. Barrel, no, but, but but the the bit where like, all the barrel CGI, but set there in the, the the bridge. That's a model. They, they I think the actors are filming the blue screen and superimposed on top of a model. Uh, is it all CGI? Uh, all practical effects that bit because it looks really hard the, to pull off. The barrel CGI, but the bridge was all a model. Ah, like, okay. The, all this, you know the bridge wall, that was a model. They filmed the model and then superimposed the actors on top of it. But surely isn't like the whole backdrop and everything like partially that... CGI, or is that all practical as well? Because mm. it... I'm not sure. Yeah, because they used a mix of effects. They used 
um, practical, like all thanks a, pr- a big model, yeah, like, a, a, called a bigature rather than a miniature. Um, there's other things as well, like um, they used a lot of, they shot a lot of scenes twice with the actors, so they could kind of scale down the hobbits and scale doubles for the hobbits. They did all these kind of different tricks. Yeah, but even like CGI that were, I confident with like the Balrog himself, and also the you know the trolls and all that, they do look you know incredible for its time. I think, like, mm. and even got well. I mean, he doesn't really show up in this film, as you say. They're trying to sort of sort out its effects, but like, Gollum in later films looks incredible. So I just, I mean, just in awe at the special effects team for them to pull off what they did. It really holds up even now. Um, yeah, especially compared to films released around that kind of time. Yeah, like, some their effects and age as well as these films have, like twenty years gone. Yeah. It's like with Spider-Man, I was watching that. Some of the special effects in that movie have not aged well at all. They look like... There's a bit where he's running on the roof of the buildings and he looks like a little cartoon mm. character. It's what happens when you have several years of pre-production to really finalise the costumes. And yeah, because, yeah, because the, the Hobbit films were made in fact. such a rush and they don't look anywhere near as good as these films. I just don't know why they got rid of the practical orcs. I don't know why they CGI'd all the orcs. I think that was a huge mistake. Yeah. Uh, don't was, know why they yeah, did that. that was they, they still look, they look even worse now, those CGI orcs. The, the, yeah, and the costume orcs yeah. look so cool and frightening. As Ian says, you know, they're terrifying to look at. Um, even now, they like. Aged, they, haven't, they haven't aged at all, the costumed orcs no. in Lord of the Rings. They look they look fantastic now. This, it, is, the, this is the thing I said to a VFX guy, because I studied VFX at uni. I was saying, like, some practical effects are really good because they can always sort of stand the test of time. They always will look like something real because they are, uh, rather than some sort of, like, cartoon thing that will, you know, inevitably age with time. Do you know what I mean? One thing I also want to talk about is the focus the film has, because the thing that one of the strengths of the film and the trilogy as a whole is they focus primarily on Frodo and his struggle to destroy the ring. And like the film establishes the threat of the ring race and the power of the ring. And they do this through them cutting things from the book that would have detracted from this. So, for instance, in the book, Frodo, he spends months preparing to leave the Shire. Yeah. Whereas in the film, he leaves instantly and he's instantly pursued by ring race. And likewise, um, a certain character is infamously cut from the book named Tom Bombadil. And he is cut from the film because he serves no purpose to the plot, much to the dismay of some people. I like Tom. But his part of the book has no bearing on the rest of the story. The only time he's brought up again is during the Council of Elrond by Gandalf. And that is pretty much just for him to say that Tom is no use to what they're dealing with and he won't be able to help. Well, no. Yeah, the, the thing with Tom Bombadil, a lot of people don't seem to realise, is that both the Ralph Bakshi film and the 80s radio adaptation that I listened to both also cut him out because they also realize that he does not add anything to the overall plot, you know, and it is it is just... My theory is, with, with The Fellowship of the Ring, is that it started off a lot like the original Hobbit, where the characters would go from one scary or weird peril or magical thing after another. You know, the whole plot of The Hobbit is that they run into trolls, they run into spiders, they run into a, a, a bear man thing. Um, you know. He fought with the goblins. He battled a troll. He riddled with Gollum. A magic ring he stole. He was chased by wolves, lost in the forest, escaped in a barrel from the elf king's halls. Bilbo. Bilbo. 
famous little hobbit of them all. And that's how the Fellowship of the Ring starts as well, is where they go into the old forest, they run into the Barrow Whites, they run into Tom Bombadil, they run into, you know, they run into the Ring Wraiths. It's kind of a weird opening that I know a lot of people struggle with, with the beginning of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, they really that's like, why it took me go, a few attempts mm, to read yeah. the books. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've definitely spoken to people where they're like, well, I tried to get into it, but the beginning just takes so long to get going. Which is so strange because then once you get past like the Council of Elrond, the whole story speeds up so quickly, and, yeah. and then Two Towers and Return of the King are just such fast-paced books, and they're amazing. You get so much detail and everything going; it's fantastic. But you have this very slow-paced opening because I think yeah. at that time Tolkien was still figuring out what to do. So basically, every adaptation has just cut out like this stuff that isn't really necessary to the overall plot Although I, I like he's a fun little detail but he is not needed in any of the adaptations no. he does i do think that soviet's adaptation that surfaced a few months ago i think that's got tom bombadil but i've not actually watched the soviet one yet the whole thing with tom bombadil is that like the, for some reason a tree captures frodo and then he magically comes in and saves the day and i just think it's a bit of a weird it, it removes the tension as well because like the journey at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring where they're going through the forest and they're trying to escape the Rim Wraiths is really suspenseful and you get this impression that they're all alone and they're out there there's no help for them apart from Strider whereas Tom Bombadil magically showing up and saving the day it just removes that sort of suspense one thing I think the film does really well is humanises like, or adds more character on the characters like First one we talk about is Boromir. They um, humanise him a bit more and give him a reason to want to wield the ring because, like, we find out that the people of Gondor are forces of Mordor, and he he just wants the ring because he wants to help his people. Mm. And like, there's that nice scene after they leave um, Moria, where the hobbits are of Gandalf and Aragorn saying, "Oh, let's go." Boromir is like, "Let them grieve, God damn it!" Legolas, get them out. Give them a moment, for pity's sake! By nightfall, these hills will be swarming with orcs! Oh, yeah. And also, there's a nice scene where, Bor where Boromir is, um... I think they're in the mountains, and, like, he's sparring with Merry and Pippin. And that's a fun little scene. Yeah. Yeah, Boromir was always a good man. Uh, just, you know, the, there was always that feeling that he needed to step up and, and save his, his home and his people. And the ring is very tempting way of doing that and mm. that's ultimately the problem is is that he looks at this ring understands the power that could be wielded with it mm. um and he could ultimately yeah maybe he could fight off sauron with you know with the ring but in the end it would ultimately be their 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 ruin you know their undoing mm. um but it's a very tempting that's the problem like one of the things that Elrond mentions in, at the council is that um, the reason why they're going to go out and destroy it is because it's the one thing Sauron would never think his enemies would actually try to do. Like, his thinking is that... Uh, and that's enemies... why they didn't take the eagles. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, the point is, is that the Sauron thinks that whoever his enemies are they will use the ring against him and then he can use that against them in turn he never thinks oh they'll actually want to destroy their most powerful weapon 
Um, so it's a really, you know, it's a, yeah, and, and yeah, they don't, well, they don't want to use the eagles because the eagles would be way too obvious. They're literally these giant flying birds coming into Mordor, making it really obvious to Sauron, right, I've got my own dragon flying monsters, just go kill those eagles, you know. Um, but anyway, people Oh, it people is not a pothole. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> the other character who's given more characterization is Aragorn. In the book, I think he's not the most interesting of characters. He's basically just kind of a bit one notes, but the film gives him more layers. He has like kind of more of an arc. He's got self doubts about his destiny because he's the ancestor of Isildur who who had the ring and and failed to destroy it. And Aragorn feels um, he can't be king. He's not up to it because of whose ancestors are. He's destined to have the same failure. And his arc in the whole trilogy is for him to overcome these doubts and become the leader he's destined to become. Yeah. And we kind of start him coming to his at the end of this film. We will not abandon Merry and Pippin to torment and death. Not while we have strength left. Leave all that can be spared behind. We travel light. Let us hunt some walk. Well, he, he takes on a leadership role from Gandalf, and um, and but yeah, there is this feeling throughout that he's not up to it, that he's not up to leading people. It's why he was always kind of on his own in the wilds as, as a ranger. Um, mm. They also give Arwen a lot more screen time, which I'm all about because I love both Arwen and Liv Tyler's <laughs> film. Yes. Um, but they, they replaced Glorfindel, the elf, with her in my favorite scene in the film, which is the the chase uh, by the ringwraiths to, to Rivendell. If you want him, come and claim him. Um, just an incredible, it's an, you know, whichever rider did it, it would have still have been a fantastically shot scene. It's so brilliant mm. uh, with with Howard Shaw's music as well. It's amazing, but mm. uh, I think I, I think having Arwen do it does give it stronger stakes because there is this relationship between her and Aragorn, and it actually tells us who Arwen is. This woman that Aragorn in the books literally throughout the three books, and we never meet her until the very end. So it is it's good that yeah, she's because um... the role. There. Yeah, it's because um, Arwen's, like the Arwen-Aragorn romance, that was mostly neat. So it wasn't actually part of the main story. So, But the films yeah. take that out of the appendices and kind of implement it inside the plot of the yeah. films. And yeah, giving Arwen the especially because Lord of the Rings doesn't really have many female characters. It's like, um, there's Arwen, there's Eowyn and Gladriel. And of course, Eowyn has her big moment in Return of the King. Um, but then Galadriel kind of just more kind of on the sidelines. Well, Galadriel is, you know, again, this kind of otherworldly mm. creature, really. She's, you know, she's the elf witch. Um, and, uh, like, really, yeah, she she's the most Tom Bombadil in the sense that she is someone who probably could have taken the ring and, you know, used it in a really kind of powerful you know she would have had more control over it than anyone else but of course that itself was temptation as she said she passed the test when frodo offered offered it to her freely um you know it's a very dangerous moment because she could have just taken it and you know become the most powerful being on middle earth 
Um, she's a very, very scary kind of character, the way she speaks in, in people's minds. Like, mm. Boromir is absolutely terrified mm. by her. Gimli's kind of a bit wary of her, but then he, he ends up falling in love with her. <laughs> the idea. For a strand of her hair. <laughs> oh, it's so sweet. Having looked my last upon that, which is fairest. Oh, henceforth I will call nothing fair unless it be her gift to me. What was her gift? I asked her for one hair from her golden head. She gave me three. But it's the idea that the elves are so kind of... They're a bit like the angels in um, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy a little bit. So the angels in Dante's Divine Comedy are so magnificent and so beautiful that mortals will simply go mad if they looked upon them, like, directly. So I think there was kind of something similar like that. Elves are just so beautiful and otherworldly that a mortal being, you know, cannot... It's just too profound to look upon them, you know, for a mortal to look mm. upon an immortal like that. It's it's just mind-boggling to them. So I think they captured that quite nicely in the film. Like, as you say, Boromir is kind of looking down like, oh, I can't do it. Um, but also Gimli being, you know, strong of mind. Uh, being the best character in the whole film, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> totally asked her out for a date. Um, no, uh, but yeah. I, I do like how the elves are portrayed. And I do like... I like Gimli as well. I think Gimli... This is something I can say for sure about the book, is that Gimli hasn't got as much character in the books as he does in the film. I think in the film... Oh, same with Legolas. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a bit more banter, isn't there? I think. Yes. Yeah. Uh, especially as we get as the films go on. And you know there's that scene where um in the um was it on the bridge of Kazadun when they're on the stairs and um Gary says, Oh, no one tosses a dwarf. That was actually added in yeah. reshoots because there's a line in Two Towers which where um Gimli's like Toss me. What? I cannot jump the distance I have to toss me. After that line they say they added the scene of referencing that in Fellowship where he goes, no, tosses a dwarf and he goes, oh, not the beard! <laughs> That's great. I hadn't realised they'd done that retrospectively. That's really funny. Yeah, to, to make a little joke out of it in the second film. That's really fun. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah no, Gimli's yeah, great. He's, he's our representative of dwarves, really. Um, mm. you know, he, he redeems dwarves because dwarves, uh, as Elrond says, they hide in their mountains looking for treasures and caring nothing for others. But here's Gimli, damn it, who's, who's helping yeah. out. You know. And it's good because, of course, in The Hobbit, Bilbo was out with dwarves, and actually, um, Gimli is the son of one of the dwarves who went out with Bilbo. Mm. Yeah. Nobody tosses a dwarf! The ring wraiths are great. I love the, uh, oh, yeah. the music. The choir music that happens when they when they appear um, is absolutely terrifying, uh, and the scream they do is is just an again another another world. Um, they're the first kind of indication of like magic, apart from Gandalf, I guess, but like kind of dark magic. Um, I'm just and the Mor the Morgul blade, you know, very very sinister people. I'm just looking this up just to make sure I'm not all like making up rubbish here, but I believe yes. The Nazgul scream was provided by Peter Jackson's wife. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. Oh, yeah. Fran Walsh, yes. Just wanted to make sure I got that right. But yeah, so uh, a lot of these high-pitched screams are made by Peter Jackson's wife, so... <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
one thing that was really cool that they did the film was they made um, the Battle of Amon Hen um, the climax, which is interesting because that that chapter in the books was the first chapter of the Two Towers, where it's basically mm. Aragorn finds Boromir and he's dying, and Boromir tells him what happened and how the hobbits have been taken. But here it provides like kind of like a big climactic battle for the film where it get wraps up Boromir's arc where he redeems himself by sacrificing his life to try and save the lives of Merry and Pippin, who we've had a scene of them bonding together. Uh, yeah. And he finally accepts Aragorn as his king because in the Council of Elrond scene, Boromir's like, oh, Gondor has no king, it needs no king. Which of course he'd say because yeah. his father is the steward of Gondor. And Aragorn is also like, I don't know what strength I have, but I will ensure that Gondor does not fall. I do not know what strength is in my blood, but I swear to you, I will not let the White City fall. Nor our people fail. Our people. Our people. And we also get this battle with Aragorn facing off against the Urukite, which is a really fun fight sequence where we get to see Peter Jackson kind of indulge some of his more the techniques he used on like his earlier films because the, his death is glorious. Aragorn cuts his head off and stabs him, kind of. And also, I want to point out Viggo Mortensen is an absolute trooper, and where the Uruk actually like threw a knife at him, he he actually did throw the knife, and Viggo actually did deflect it. <laughs> that's cool <laughs> that's really fun yeah no it's an incredible fight scene and, and i just love there's a wonderful panning shot from uh aragorn legolas and gimli uh as we follow the urukai running towards boromir and um and merry and pippin as, as boromir's blowing the horn of gondor um it's a really wonderful shot because it kind of emphasizes just how far away uh, boromir is and how you know, how kind of a dangerous situation he is just one man fighting against this horde of orcs um you know, it's a wonderful wonderful just camera shot and i always notice that every time i'm watching it going oh wow you know going through all these trees and everything is very difficult but they they did a great job so mm. no, fair play to the filmmakers they uh famously lord of the rings pretty pretty well shot film uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> not, not, not a controversial yeah. thing to say at all you know mm. i do want to uh, one thing i do want to argue as well is the merits of the theatrical version because since the release of the extended versions a lot of people seem to completely disregard the theatrical versions of the films because they're shorter and don't have the extra scenes in i'm here to defend them oh. because both versions mm. can coexist and even peter jackson himself says the theatrical versions were his preferred versions because they're the versions that he he, he he intended to be seen and i'd argue that they're paced better mm. but yeah he, he did the extended editions with the fans who want to see kind of like everything i do like yeah. the scenes that were added to the extended version but i can see the reasoning behind why i lost them were removed from the film yeah i mean i prefer i prefer the theatrical version of 
Fellowship of the Ring, I think. Like I, I, I prefer the opening with um with Gandalf and and Frodo to as opposed to with Bilbo. It starts off with, um yeah, I don't know. Mm. I just I yeah, watching that makes... the two. Yeah, I, I felt I preferred the theatrical. Yeah, I think... it's a very it's a very difficult it's a very different opening. Yeah. Mm. Well, this is the thing. This is a problem with a lot of entertainment I have these days. Is that I think things go on for too long. It's like with like Netflix shows that are like literally episodes are an hour long to get through like a thirteen episode series. I just think it's too much of a commitment. Whereas you know, I mean, if you want to get a full extensive experience, watch the extended cut by all means. But there's also a shorter, more digestible option as well. So if you need to. I don't know, like, for instance, sometimes before I go to work, I want to cram in a movie or something before I head in. So that's quite convenient to me. So I kind of like shorter things. I think just because something's bigger, same with Fallout 2 comparing to Fallout 1, just because something's bigger doesn't mean it's better. What I love is that you're saying the shorter digestible thing. I mean, this is still three hours. I know, <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, one thing that I will say about the extended cut is the films are split across two discs so you can watch them in chunks because that way it's more digestible because mm. I think they realised yeah like like Return of the King extended edition is like four and a half hours yeah <laughs> mm. it's like the Snyder cut I just think it's so unnecessary to make something like that oh, four hours long yeah. you know what I mean I, I, yeah like I did I watched that and it hadn't been four hours long sorry it didn't no it was just a lot of nothing but like it still goes to my point I don't think it should be a good like encouraged thing to make things too long I think brevity yeah. is important with entertainment although I think I think I feel Lord of the Rings justifies its runtime for the most part because the books are long there is a lot to pack in like hey, even like Return of the King film has stuff from the Two Towers book in it because they struggled to kind of fit that into the two I think it's kind of they want to stick to Tolkien's timeline and also for the benefits of adaptation. Yeah, I agree. Help so much the good films. This is <laughs> like true. I suppose you know Snyder Cut isn't actually a good film. Uh, yeah. yeah, because the Hobbit yeah. films are so long, but that's because they have so much stuff that did not need to be in the films. Oh yeah, well the Hobbits aren't great. Well, in the first Hobbit's great, it's just the second and third, just no. Especially the third one. That did not need to be as long as it was. <laughs> Didn't need to exist. It could have just been the ending of the second movie. <laughs> Baggins. I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure. I can't just go running off into the blue. I am a Baggins. Wait! Of Baggins. Bilbo, allow me to introduce Feely, Keely, Boyn, Loin, Darlin, Barlin. Dory, 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 and the leader of our company, Thorin Oakenshield. Favorite characters? Um, yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. No, that's a nice way to end. Uh, yeah. Games. That's a hard one, though. Uh, sorry, could someone else go first? So I just need a moment to think um, about this. I'll go um, my favorite. It, this is hard because it's between two, but. Yeah, first up, Gandalf the Grey, because he's clearly wise and powerful, and you can tell he's seen some like stuff. Like he's very experienced; he's, he's been through some stuff. But there's a real kind of sense of humanity about him. Like he enjoys like making fireworks with the hobbits and and stuff. He like and he like smokes with Bilbo. He, he just has, he has the, like, the simple pleasures, but he also he also has genuine fears and great wisdom. Because, like he's genuinely scared of going to Moria because of the Balrog. He he does not he knows what the Balrog is, and he does not want to face it. But my very close second character is favorite character is Samwise. Um, 
But I feel he only really comes into his own at the very end of Fellowship because he develops more as 2000 Return of the King goes on. But Fellowship's a good start to his journey. Gandalf, Sam and Aragorn are my three favourites. Kind of cheating, <laughs> but... Very good, very good. Um, I suppose for me, yeah, I'm a bit, I'm a bit cheaty as well because I do love a lot of them. Um, I think my favourite character in Fellowship of the Ring, uh, it's a toss-up between Boromir, uh, but also Arwen. Uh, Arwen just because I love the change, the fact that she does have a bigger role. Uh, she has my favourite action sequence, which is the chase scene. Um, I just love this love I'm 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 the annoying dorky guy who insists that we don't skip over the love scenes because they're the best ones <laughs> um, the light of the even star um, no I love that I love that with Aragorn and I love her story and I love that the extended edition did have Aragorn singing the song Barry ah Eren and Luthien um, which is a, a kind of like it's like a mythological story within the myth of Lord of the Rings it's amazing mm. Who is she? This woman you sing of. Tis the lay of Luthien, the elf maiden who gave her love to Beren. The story of the elf the elf woman who falls in love with the mortal man and must give up her, her immortality for him um, I love that I love that as a wonderful little story but I also love Boromir uh, Boromir I think is the most you know in this world of wizards and, and magic kings with magic swords you have this very real man who's just trying to do the best he can trying to please his father um, trying to do right by his people, uh, just and Sean Bean is incredible as Boromir. Just this kind of—he has his natural charisma. We like Sean Bean and we like Boromir, um, but then you have this quite—you know—this this darker side to him that comes out uh, by this, but ultimately by this desire to do the right thing. And I think it's it's a wonderful character. So anyway, yeah. So those are my two, uh, James. Yeah. Favourite character. Thank you for going first. <laughs> I've had a moment to think about it. And I'm glad you've got, picked two characters because I think there's two characters I've picked from as well. It's the characters that I can see myself being in this universe. Um, first off is Bilbo. I'm going to say Bilbo. I think, you know... Famous the... little hobbit of the ball. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, um, you know, he's played by Ian Holm, uh, who was in the first Alien movie, am I right in saying? Um, yes, Alien. Yep, yeah, he is great actor um but also he's just the way he behaves I, I can imagine myself behaving like that on my birthday going like oh i can't deal with all this crowd oh. but also being like friend like would you like a <laughs> cup of tea or some cheese and all that and then like hearing someone you don't like come in the room like oh god hide <laughs> um i don't know he's just very charming he's like someone i'd like to be when i'm older um genuinely i just think he's a very fun character um a very jolly interesting person that's even though he's quite polite and all that, he's also a bit of a cheeky knob as well. Like, he just doesn't, you know, he doesn't like the public crowds and all that. Um, so, yeah, I like I like Bilbo. I think he's a lot of fun. Um, but there's also Gimli. Uh, I love Gimli uh, because I think he's just a sweet dwarf. I think he captures the innocence of Middle-earth a lot. Like, he's quite a... 
fair individual that, like, you know, he's not high up like the elves. He's not this immortal being. He's not on this big quest. He's not a warrior. He's, I mean, he is a warrior, but he's not, like, um, he's not graceful, but he is He's more sluggish. Yeah, he's more sluggish, but he's, he's innocent. He's childlike, and he's pure as well. I think he's the most pure of all the characters. Especially with that bit with Galadriel where, you know, he says, like, I want a single lock of your hair. And he, and she and she gave me three. I just feel like it's the most sweet thing. And he's funny as well. Like, the things he says. I just can imagine, like, everyone's always kind of serious all the time. And they just hear, have Gimli going around, like, going, oh, where's my roasted pork, you know? It's just kind of, I don't know. I, I love pork. Gimli. Yeah, like, there's almost, I almost feel like he's, like, the most human of the lot. Even though he's not a human himself. He's a, a dwarf, but... You know, I think absolutely Gimli and Bilbo are my two picks. All right. So, yes, see you next year for the two towers. But before yes. then, Ewan, what are we discussing next time yet for our first episode of 2022? We are doing next time the wonderful children's modern classic. I'm going to call it a classic. A Paranorman about a little boy who can see ghosts and his uncle is John Goodman. Uh... That's the plot. That's the whole plot of Paranorman. Uh, I'm very excited. That'll be a lovely, lovely film to, to rewatch and and discuss. So yeah. Before we go, I want to give a big thank you to everyone who's checked out our podcast this year. We'll be back next year, and we've pretty much all um, decided on going to be discussing next year. But until then, we hope you all have a safe and merry holiday season and a happy new year. Bye. Bye. Listen to the radio adaptation, it's really good. Thank you for listening to Bloobcast. We've been Rob, James and Ewan. You can find all of our episodes on Bloobcast.com. We're also available on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We also have a YouTube channel where we produce shorter episodes called Blooblets, where we discuss the latest news in popular culture. You can find us on social media with at Pod on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please like, follow, and subscribe so you can get the latest updates on new episodes. We also have an email address, which is bloopcast.outlook.com. So if you have any feedback or want to suggest things for us to review in our future episodes, please feel free to drop us an email and you'll get a shout-out on the next episode. Please also rate and review us on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. More engagement helps us a lot. And finally, please share the podcast amongst your friends and family. Help spread the word so that the Bloopcast empire can become strong and mighty. What are you doing? Tomatoes, sausages, nice crispy bacon. We saved some for you, Mr. Frodo. Put it out, you fools! Put it out! That's nice!